I'm Siham Cyrene, and you are here for Better Conversations. So maybe that's my conversation. My conversation starts with part one, what is the then? And then two, where are the overlaps? And then I try to move the conversation into one where we're talking about the overlaps. It's positive building on each other's thoughts into where we're, we can see that there's a constructive conversation starting to happen and a shared interest and a shared outcome. And I'm sort of leading it into a point where we can, and if there are five people, there are five circles. And then I'm drawing, because then it's too much to hold in my head. And I am drawing. I've got my drawing book is full of four circle, five circle, Venn diagram, where I'm making notes at the beginning of the discussion about all the things where they're coming from. And it's got words like resistant change and authority figure and all the things I'm watching till I start to get a point and it's like, hang on a minute, they all seem to be quite concerned about January. And they seem quite concerned about solving for this group. And they seem to be quite concerned. This is interesting. I think somewhere in this is a common goal. While we're gifted with speech, conversations, really good conversations, don't happen as much as we'd like. In this podcast, my guest and I deep dive into all the corners of what makes a conversation awkward and uncomfortable, or warming and memorable. My guest is Steve Britton. Steve is co-founder of InsureTech Gateway, the only FCA-authorised independent incubator and fund. It's where founders can go and get underwriting paper, investment capital and advice on how to design and build their startup for the insurance industry, which has so many barriers to entry. And he says founders often run out of energy and money just trying to get in. One founder refers to them very nicely as insurance Sherpas, guiding us through the wilderness of insurance. Along with his co-founders, Steve takes founders on a journey towards investors and he enlists the support and patience of true collaborators, who he defines as geeks who have a shared fascination in each other who recognise each other as peers and who all like to get their geek on. Steve sees himself as a peacekeeper in conversations, working to get both sides, founders and investors, to align on ideas. He's very visual in conversations, using mind maps crossed with Venn diagrams and props like mugs, phones and drinks coasters to help himself and others get clarity about the value exchange. So why don't you kick off and explain who your stakeholders are, who the people that you interact with every day? I work between two quite different worlds. I work between the world of a very traditional, classic culture of the insurance market, the risk market. Um, And within those groups are people who are moving billions of pounds of capital and their main language is risk and fear and concern and anticipating the worst. And on the other side, of my world, I, I talk to tech founders and startups, and they're thinking about brave new ways of making life easier. And they're radical, and they want to disrupt, and they don't think of the risk. They think of the opportunity, think of ways in which they could accelerate the thinking or the, the modernization of an industry, do a light year jump without waiting for a corporate decision or a change. So those two, I feel like the, um, 
um, I'm pulled between two very powerful forces that speak very different languages. And I need, uh, my days are spent um, trying to translate the needs of one and the resistance of the other into some kind of happy medium. And along the way, I have, you know, it's one of those moments where for a long time, it doesn't look like it's going to work. So my conversations are more begging <laughs> right, right. for support, where I'm trying to get people's belief and faith behind this journey, which feels unmeasurable and un, um, un, unresolvable. And then there's a moment where it clearly is working and the confidence comes into the project. And then all those that are ready when there is certainty come rushing in and they're hungry and they're keen and they're confidence is high and they're selling consulting skills and services and trying to tell you that you need them and that they're the solution to your problem. Um, so there's a, yes, I guess there's a, I'm drawing a visual picture of disruptors on one side and conservatives on the other. And in the middle is a growing journey of confidence of which I sort of sit in, in the midst of that and try to mediate mm. that journey. And what have you learned? Because that sounds like immense patience and stamina on your part. You know, you talk about having to have probably multiple conversations before something clicks. Um, what have you learned along the way about what makes that happen more smoothly or faster? I think it was um, the biggest change for me was... Um, finding hybrid people to help me in the middle. So um, specifically, if I were talking about this very conservative insurance or risk market, to have identified people that can come to the front edge of that world, um, who are very open-minded, have probably had, have invested a lot of their own time um, and energy to understand the future of technology and possibilities. So they're almost um, the converted already, the converted of that group. And equally, um, from the technology side, to find those who respect the conservative, risk-averse nature of the groups they're trying to deal with. So to find the more uh, mature um, and aware startup founders. And, and I think that has been my, uh, that was my salvation to find an answer to this. Because I think earlier when you're trying to pit rebels against um, the, what they think are the keepers of the peace, that's an impossible thing to square. So I think, yes, it was to first identify those groups and then to form a, a new circle in the middle for those two sides to meet. So I couldn't make the full bridge myself, but I had to find people who could meet me right. either end. Right. That's fascinating. Are there many people like that? Um, no, well, it's funny, actually. There are a number of people that make noises like that and they... Um, but them that really see it through are quite rare. And you really need people with a long-term belief and a patience because what you're after is people who have agreed to a learning journey, not people who can already do it or have done it. Yeah, so often I find myself with people selling their abilities to me on one side. And then when we start to work together, I realize that they don't have the patience or the determination to, do, to really build that bridge in the middle. They want a quick fix. And so I think my, that second phase was about, we'd, uh, it was about sifting through those groups to find those are true collaborators who are willing to empower us on one side and willing to learn and learn the language to communicate in the middle. Right. What do you think brings them together? What makes that possible? That's a great question. 
I would like to say it's a shared purpose. I think we often start meetings with a shared purpose. Um, but I think more than anything, it's just a shared fascination in each other. I refer to them as, um, oh, here's my insurance geek and here's my software geek. So I call them all geeks. And geeks was a word that was all, there was always a word for the software guy. But actually, they all just like to get their geek on. And so I think that by accepting that they're all um, incredibly curious, that they, have, they all bring a super skill to the conversation and that there's a mutual respect um, between Mr. Insurance Geek or Mr. An and Data Analytics Geek or Mr. Forecasting Geek or Mr. IoT Sensor Geek or whoever, whatever kind of unusual skill is required, that there's a recognition of peers. Um, and I think that was, that's been quite fundamental. They're enjoying playing with others who are also excellent at what they do. We talk about peers a lot and I know, you know, learning from each other and, you know, developing with um, each other. Do you think this, this concept around peers is a new concept or we've just found a new word for it? Certainly in my own development. I can't, I can't talk about the history of this subject, but my own development, um, as I've tried to do more and more complex things, solve more complex problems, that the need for mutual respect amongst people from different backgrounds is fundamental to the success, to the success of it. And 10 years ago, I didn't get it. I thought we had a master and servant relationship where one group led and the other had to follow. And it is only as I, my own ambition and my own goals to solve more complex problems have arisen. But I guess I'm, I must be sitting amongst a, a, I was about to say a peer group. Um, maybe I have to find another thesaurus <laughs> for this word. But, uh, but yes, I'm, I'm conscious that we're reading more. Self-development is more, is more around me. But I, I, actually, I just don't know whether that's my age or whether it's the time. I don't think my dad is, is open to other skills or um, other peers of his age, but that's a big jump. Yeah, certainly development. Um, an awareness about our own awareness of ourselves and how we can develop and achieve more for ourselves and others is um, definitely something I think um, that we're all much more aware of. Tell me, what do those conversations look and feel like? There's a fun conversation, which almost sounds like, what do you want to be when you're old? <laughs> yep. In this middle ground, I have some very successful people who have succeeded in their, in a small kingdom. You know, they've been very good at their jobs. They've risen to the top. They've, um, they've gained great confidence and stature and wealth. And then they want to do something more. They want another dimension. And that's often the starting point um, at one side of the equation, which is how can I help? But reading between the lines, what they're, what they're really wanting to do is develop more personally. And they're looking for the next challenge. And that challenge isn't an external thing. It is they're trying to work out what they want to be when they're older. And I feel like I'm having my, often my first conversations with very successful people are career conversations. And they've come in to invest, but actually I'm trying to work out what's driving them. Mm -hmm. I could do the flip side to a founder of an idea. I often have someone walk, so I had somebody walked in the door the other day who was an ex um, data analyst for NASA. Wow. Mm -hmm. So you can find, you know, a, a more specialist type individual who was incredible. I mean, he was in his late 20s. Some of the things he'd been working on and where he'd been with this super skill of his. And I asked him about this idea. He had an idea that he could 
spot fires from space. He could read satellite data. He could tell me when a fire was happening in a very short amount of time. And I said, well, this is great. There's obviously lots of potential. What do you want to do with this? Well, it should, it should be a business doing this. I said, yes, yes, I know what it should be. But what do you want to do? Do you want to run a business? Do you want to meet somebody that wants to run your business? Do you want to go back to your lab and come up with a new thing that tells us when the glaciers are falling? Mm. Um, and us to put you in a, in a guilt, guilt laboratory, you know, a gilded <laughs> laboratory while you solve the problems of the future and where do you fit in this world that you're becoming this architect? He was dumbfounded by the question because he hadn't thought through, he had, I think it was the first time he'd been in an environment where he could achieve all of those three routes if he just thought about it himself and thought about what he wanted. Mm. Well, what a, a brilliant conversation. That sounds really playful as well and creative. Well, I think it's one of those, have you ever heard of the um, Benjamin Zander, doctor of the Boston Philharmonic? And I listened to one of his podcasts five years ago, and he talked about um, unlocking musicians. And he took that, a lot of his philosophies of helping people overcome their fear of playing music. And he talked about helping people find their A and defining their super skill. And it was a very inspiring lecture. And then I, I subsequently met him and went to one of his lectures. But he clearly had a way of, of very um, intuitively seeing someone's super skill and understanding where they should maybe point it as a first thing. And so I've made that very, a very conscious thought myself when I meet people, like that example of I'm trying to work out, okay, you're very clever, but that's not an A in its own right. Your A might be you could be the world's best data provider for catastrophic risk for the next 20 years. And there's a Nobel Prize coming your way. But if you're the guy that's going to spend the next 10 years going from investor room to investor room to, to various people telling them about your latest idea, you'll be the guy with the idea that never did. And I think that's a narrow line about having the right conversation with yourself first. Um, and so I haven't quite framed this in my own head now I'm started, but there's something about knowing, what, knowing where your strength is and then recognizing who else you need to join you and having an open-mindedness that maybe what he needs is an entrepreneur as a partner mm. or maybe what he needs is to be housed in a research facility that gives him all the facilities he needs just to focus on his super skill. Um, is he looking to develop into a new thing or is he just looking to be nurtured as the thing he is? There's a few things in there that provoke some questions in me. One is, does it take someone externally looking at us to be able to see what we can't see. Maybe we'll start there. I believe so. I believe in surrounding yourself with very smart, perceptive people that can help frame things for you. Um, I think personal development is a social thing. And so I'm a believer in, in regularly checking in with people who are you, you regard as peers who will give you a, a perspective on yourself. Um, and, and with that comes a vulnerability that you're willing to let people maneuver you and move you and and uncover things for you that you may not have seen yourself and so what do you want to be when you grow up <laughs> <laughs> oh that's that's mean and and good <laughs> i don't know i don't know 
I'm loving the journey. I'm loving the journey of learning. So there are some things I um, am more drawn to now. I'm more drawn to the concept of impacting more people and more lives. And there's a sort of wanting to scale what we're doing. And that's very appealing to me. It sounds um, like an ego statement. I, I guess maybe mastering this is something that really appeals to me. Mastering the ability to unlock super talented people and getting them to work together for the benefit of humankind is a lifelong journey. And I guess what I want to be when I grow older is satisfied. I want to be satisfied. And I don't give it the milestones that I ask of others. I just enjoy, I really enjoy seeing that stage of development of skills and people and ideas. And I'm where I want to be. Um, and, and I just need to continually check in with myself that it's satisfying. And satisfying, I guess, is an evolving conversation with myself, which is, um, do I feel that good ideas and good people are making it through? Do I believe, and, and more increasingly, this is about, are we having a good impact, a positive impact? And my measures of that are a learning thing too. It used to be, is a great idea coming to life, because I love ideas. But now it's more about the social definition of that. Are we creating jobs? Are we reducing pains in people's lives? Are we solving a humanitarian challenge? And that's become more and more of interest to me. As maybe as, I, it's, as my confidence grows that I can do things, I want to find more complex things to solve. And you're exposing yourself and being exposed to big ideas, big concepts. Yes, I'm actively seeking bigger ideas and bigger problems. Mm. And I think it's a, it's almost like acclimatizing, isn't that, to, okay, I've done that, I've seen something bigger, I've seen something even more imaginative come to light or come to fruition. Yes, there's one thing that, I'm, that I miss, and it's the new thing that I've learned is the power of the people you now have around you. And so when I say, you know, doing, you know, that greater altitude or that ambition, the strength of that in that statement is all because of the people I now have around me. I have very much a sense of we've done this. Imagine what we can do next. We as a growing group is not a new group every time. What I used to like doing was walking into a completely cold environment and starting from scratch. Now I want to go back to the group and say, look what we did. Do you think we could do this? And who else should join? What's your unique perspective on conversations, do you think? I think I might be a peacekeeper in a very mundane sense. I really enjoy um, a conversation between two groups that don't understand each other. Um, so my perspective is, how do I help translate the insight from one group to another and i get i'm not sure if that answers your question but it's certainly something that i enjoy and i feel i have a natural sorry a no i have a learned ability over time because i've invested so much time in different spaces to um to be the broker of conversations and the and the person that brings those two spaces together so for me often and i and I've already defined that conversation as being not just myself and one other. It's a room full of people who are stakeholders. Of, and there's a lot of tensions and misunderstandings and different agendas. And navigating that and laying a map down and aligning people, 
that is how I most enjoy chartering a path through. Yeah, it's very visual the way you talk about, in the context of conversations, you talk about the people in the room, the people with you, the, the geeks bringing their specialties. It is a very visual thing, it sounds like. Is that fair? Yes, this is, um, this is unusual for me to have a conversation where we don't have a pen between us. <laughs> um, okay. In the pre-roll to this conversation, I drew words and arrows of tensions between different points I wanted to talk about. I visualize, do you know the Venn diagram where you have the circle overlap? Mm-hmm. My world, my, my nickname when I was studying postgraduate in, um, I did a, a short course in how to communicate with sort of creative leadership and design thinking. And the nickname they gave me at the end of it was Steve Venn, as in the Venn diagram. Because I saw things as people with differing opinions, but see them, but people with commonalities. And I'm a walking Venn diagram builder or maker where I'm trying to find common threads and I'm f- trying to find the value, the shared values and value between opposing forces all the time. So maybe that's my conversation. My conversation starts with part one, what is the Venn? And then two, where are the overlaps? And then I tried to move the conversation into one where we're talking about the overlaps. It's positive building on each other's thoughts into where we're, we can see that there's a constructive conversation starting to happen and a shared interest and a shared outcome. And I'm sort of leading it into a point where we can, and if there are five people, there are five circles. And, and then I'm drawing because then there's too much to hold in my head. Mm. And I am drawing. I've got my drawing book is full of four circle, five circle Venn diamonds where I'm making notes at the beginning of the discussion about all the things where they're coming from. And it's got words like resistant to change and authority figure and all the things I'm watching till I start to get a point in there. It's like, hang on a minute, they all seem to be quite concerned about January. And they seem to be quite concerned about solving for this group. And they seem to be quite concerned. This is interesting. I think somewhere in this is a common goal. I've never heard anyone talk about mapping out their conversations that way or what they're observing and so I'm clear you actually will write what your observation is as well as what it maybe is being said when it gets too complicated to hold in my head otherwise I'm imagining them right. in my head but yes it's a very visual thing for me mm-hmm. um, there's a tension and then there's a commonality which echoes what you were saying um, at the beginning about bringing people, groups of people maybe at the edges of their willingness to explore and meet other peers and find that commonality. But obviously you are going to be in rooms where you've got people with very fixed perspectives. The thing I observe is a very superficial way in which this happens a lot in meetings where people walk in the door and they talk about one of two things. They talk about their family or they talk about football. This is the common piece. This is, or, or where did you come from? Which is a neutral thing, you know, and that gets the ball rolling. And then when, once that nicety is over, it becomes them and us. And, and then the struggle is to then find a genuine commonality between two groups. Because you had a sort of a superficial, and this, this may be a very English way of doing it, but I'm sure that different cultures will give you a different way of starting these things. But to find a genuine commonality, that's much harder. I'm heartened by the, um, by the rise of conversations around social impact. So I could talk to an insurer, which is a 
hard place to be. This is a machine. Insurance is an industry. It's not a group of individuals anymore. And they, you're, you're addressing a machine with 20,000 people working in it. And you're saying, but wouldn't it be nice if we could help young people get their driving, you know, to insure a car so they can drive and get their first job? And they look at you and say, but they're the riskiest people on the planet. Um, our machine said, no, you know, it's 3,000 pounds on our risk assessment to get a 17 year old to drive. And I said, 3,000 pounds, that's more than they have in their pocket at the end of the year on their first job, just to drive to work. How are we going to solve for this? Because we need young people to be driving. That's one way of having the conversation. The other conversation is, have you got kids? Yes. How old are they? They're 16. They're going to be driving soon. How do you, how are you going to help them drive soon? Oh, gosh, I really don't know. You know, we're driving them to school. We're driving them to college, to sports. What do you think is the way that we can help solve for this problem? And, um, those conversations are obviously much easier because we're starting at a point of shared understanding of the problem. Right. Well, you've moved past the superficial. You've actually made it personal. You've allowed them, you know, you've almost sort of drawn them or, or taken them down a path of, yes, we can talk in abstract, but here's the reality. Here's how it really feels. Here's why it's relevant. Because yes, you know, typical, right? You walk into a room, you do the chit chat, and then you get down to business and everyone puts on that mask of being professional and distant and so on. (laughs) And what you're talking about is bringing the humanity back into the conversation, uh, their ability to empathize because everyone has it. But I think we, in going to work, it gets masked for one reason or another. Exactly. That, that was very nicely put. You should be on the other side of the, uh, of the interview. <laughs> but it is interesting that there's, you could imagine that by the nature of what we do, how many uh, people work around us who are friends of friends or have a human connection beyond work. Without that, we can't, make, we can't build those bonds. Mm-hmm. Okay. Otherwise, it's just work. If I do want to get help, that example I gave you was a problem three years ago. We're now dealing with things like, how do we stop wildfires from space? And I can't, it's much harder to walk into a room in the city and say, so, um, your teenage kid, ever been caught in a wildfire? <laughs> yeah, it's, that stuff is harder to find those bonds, as you can imagine. But then you find, oh, there's a friend of mine who is from Australia and grew up in the bush. And he's trying to start business in London. You should meet him. And we meet and you grew up around wildfires. Oh, yeah, we grew up with it. It was a problem. It was a problem. We're trying to do this. Well, you should speak to my friend, my friend, my friend. Um, so we're navigating through real life stories and connections to make things change. Because the work conversation stopped us. There's a concept that I talk about a lot, which is there's a trust permission dynamic. And... Uh, It's only when I can trust you that I grant you permission, whether that's explicit or, you know, it just flows naturally to probe deeper, to ask more, to engage with me at a deeper, more meaningful level. Do you think that's something that um, plays out in your world as well? Absolutely. No, I think that is the, that is the science, the scientific explanation of, of asking someone to drop their professional boundaries. And allow them allow you closer to them on what matters to them. If I trust you, I'll let you get closer to me personally and my own ambitions. And if you if I get close enough, 
then we can um, we can truly um, get the best of each other, or we can lose our lose thread from the environment we're in. And sometimes it can come at a cost. Like I can completely connect with somebody, but they can be absolutely powerless to help because they can't bring their organisation with them. So they may be supportive of what you're trying to do, but they are unable for whatever reason to influence their stakeholders. It's a different permission. I give you permission to get closer to me and what I truly think. But that doesn't mean I can't give you the green light complicated project because I don't know how to bring the other people around me. Right. Well, and, you know, without getting too abstract, potentially that trust permission dynamic isn't as free flowing for him or her in their organization. So, and that takes time. That's not something that you can, you know, you you can make happen in a heartbeat. It takes some thought and without sounding manipulative, it sounds, requires some engineering. It requires some thinking through, how am I going to get these individuals to be open or receptive to this other idea? It's a bellwether to tell you that you're in the wrong organization. That's a machine and not an environment of people empowered to do things. There are modern businesses that are very much centered on the individual and accepts that um, a, a company is just a, a fictional framework around a group of highly empowered individuals. And there are thems that define a company as a 60-foot glass tower with invisible people coming and going. And they don't even have agency in that story. What is a company? It's the numbers we sent you on the spreadsheet. I think there's a modern company, which is, you know, the original company of people. It's a group of individuals who are super empowered. And wouldn't we all like to be that? Oh, for sure. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back right after this. Better conversations. We all want to have them at work. Have you ever felt dread about an upcoming chat with a colleague you needed to have Or had that sinking feeling when that meeting didn't go as well as you hoped? When we can provide a safe space in conversation, the other person feels able to open up without fear. As leaders, part of helping our team do their job effectively is to motivate and guide our people to deliver on their goals. And when we have successful conversations, we become more influential encourage deeper collaborations and foster true connection at work. Did you know it's the number one skill that sets the top leaders apart from the rest? That's why we've created a 12-week online course hosted by executive coach Seherm Sirene, helping you to navigate those tough conversations with skill and compassion. Enroll today at leaderswhocoach.today. In thinking about all the people that are around you, Steve, who have you drawn most inspiration from for your own style of conversation? Yes, the people that inspire me in terms of my nature of conversation. I think there are different characteristics I've borrowed, uh, or should I say I'm, that I'm learning from different as I go. There are some real masters of, of coaching and the sort of paternalistic care. And the, my two co-founders are 10 years older than me, and they have a nature of about them which is much more paternalistic than my own. And they listen better than me. And they try to reframe a story that's been told to them much more patiently than I do. I try to jump to the answer. I've seen this before. I see the patterns. Here's the answer. And they have a, a wisdom and a calm that um, I can see brings a great respect from the people I talk to. 
So I watch that a lot. And, and often I scold myself um, for going to trying to get to the answer too quickly when they're in the room and they're, they, they're waiting for me to finish my show. And then they drop this really nice summary. And I go, damn, I should have waited. <laughs> damn my enthusiasm. Damn myself. So that's quite an amusing moment. Um, so I like that. In the world of technical startups, it's a young man's game, a young person's game. And it's a privilege to work with people with more years. So I'm grateful for that. It's not just that. It's also their natures, of course. They're, they're very uh, paternalistic characters themselves. I learn a lot from my mum and dad. I cannot imagine how they got together in the first place. They're very different. I mean, no, sorry, that's, <laughs> in, they have a, their Venn diagram is interesting. They're both hilarious and they make each other laugh and they've got good values and they, they like each other. But my father is a total engineering geek. And if it doesn't have wheels on, he doesn't want to talk about it. It's motor racing and it's cars and it's combustion engines. And you can go from a conversation, hi dad, did you have a good day at the shops? It always ends up with a make of car that did something that backfired on the way and had a problem with its fourth cylinder and you just switch off. That's my dad. And my mum is, is an artist and a painter <laughs> and will describe a leaf to you in a thousand words because she sees the colors and the curves and the shapes and the light on it and, the, and can communicate with the richest language when she needs to. And you think, gosh, how does those two, you know, survive without Netflix in 2019? But it's funny when we're all together, you know, there isn't a conversation without a pen and a paper. There isn't one where we don't start building on each other's conversations around. They definitely showed me a way that two, that Mars and Venus can thrive or the yin and the yang can survive. I don't know why I'm using these, these cliches, but where two very different people can communicate in the middle and can have fun and respect each other. So I guess that's, that's pretty formative to me. Mm. I find that when I'm listening to you, I'm actually seeing potentially your, your mum's language and your dad's language as having some commonalities if we thought about a Venn diagram for them. I wonder if I can challenge you here to find what is the commonality for the two of them in the way that they talk. I think there's a, um, an observation of how wonderful the world is. My father could tell you why planes stay in the sky and why bridges stay up. And a walk down the road with him would be full of those conversations if you want to have. And my mother's joy of nature and sights and look at that little scene there and that thing. Um, there is a, a great deal of awe of the world around us. And we can walk to the end of the garden and I'm sure we'd have a lot of interesting conversation and it would, could take two hours because I think, yeah, I think there's a general sense of wonderment and huge curiosity, a curiosity of, and a need to try and capture it and define it and articulate it in some way or another. My father will, will draw the invisible forces of why a plane will go in the air and my mother will capture, she'll show me a leaf and say, it's not green, is it? Do you see that color there? There are, I've got to make 75 colors to paint that green leaf. And I guess that's just a, there's that wonderment and that, that desire to want to capture it in a, in a Gerald Durrell kind of way, in a way of mapping it or, or understanding it. And I think that keeps us all together. It keeps us interested. That's lovely. So to take it from a place of joy, what are you not so good at in conversation? I'm very impatient. And, um, and sometimes I want to get to the answer very quickly. 
sometimes I've already drawn it, or someone's still venting, or someone's still unfurling their complex situation. But I think it's because I'm already, tr- I'm already processing from the moment somebody starts talking to me. And I've seen when people really actively listen, I watch them and I think, gosh, that's a skill I wish I could do the active listening bit first. But I'm working from the moment the conversation starts. You know, I'm trying to visualize it. I'm trying to pin it down. I'm trying to get it. I'm trying to, to comprehend it. I try to comprehend it. And I know it's funny. You, I've, I've read a lot of, you know, these, I say I've read a lot. I am talking with my girlfriend who is very articulate. You know, sometimes she says, I just wanted you to listen. I didn't need you to explain why. I didn't ask for a solution. I just wanted you to listen. And so I think sometimes I don't read the room. I don't read that somebody wants me to be this super skilled synthesizer. Sometimes people don't want the super synthesizer. They just want me to care. And I often miss that. Is there a sense that as you're trying to comprehend what that thing is, you gravitate towards visualizing it in some way and then it spills directly into solution because that's a natural place to take it? Is that is it possible that's happening? Yes, that's, that's, that's what's happening. Most of the time, the joy of um, having some frameworks you learn over time is that I really believe in this, in this idea of you know, somebody says to you, you really help me frame the problem. And I think that's the biggest gift you can give to people now. Some flat place in the middle, which is not here's the answer, but it's I think this is the thing that's challenging you. And I think to be able to do that for people is a gift. And I think that, that overcomes some of the challenges in my girlfriend conversations where I don't have to give her the answer. I just have to maybe help her understand why she's upset or a bit knotted up in something and give her a sense of where where her next step or, or movement should be to overcome it. And very often people know what it's almost that piece is the easiest, but you could only get to that once you've unpicked the knot. And so it's almost like that's the space where someone's trying to get some clarity and also some acceptance, right, about what their part may be in how that conversation turned out or how that event transpired. We all have that. Um, that and that's what causes us to get a little bit stuck is not so much the sequence of what happened, but the emotions that sit around it and how how in control we felt of the situation um, how well we voiced things, what we compromised, what we didn't compromise, or what wasn't being honoured in the conversation. Yes, and, and in that is a, did you use the word duty earlier, or, or a sense of responsibility? Duty of care, yeah. A duty of care, yes. There's a, there's a sense of responsibility. It's interesting, I referred to my two co-founders. They very much have a conclusion. If, th- if things aren't going well, we'll say, we didn't um, ask the right question. We've not supported them in the way they need supporting. So if someone's really brattish or tricky to deal with, it's we, we're doing something to provoke this. and We can solve it. And I think that's a very empowering place to get yourself to, rather than this person's being unreasonable. It's like, we're asking the wrong question. We've set this up badly. And to have that responsibility always, I think, is a brilliant piece of advice. And I'm certainly learned from that and tried to take it on board. You know, that was a bad conversation. What did I do wrong? How could I frame it differently so that I give that person an opportunity to, um, 
to get the, the outcome they wanted. And sometimes even if we don't know what that person is looking for, it's, you know, it's okay to ask, right? It's okay to say, what do you, what do you need from me? Or how can I help? Well, that's very transactional, isn't it? And it's great when it's that simple. What do you need from me? Well, I can give you that. I often find people come and ask, you can imagine. So I work in an investment firm um, that also has a huge commitment to help solve business problems at a very early stage. Invention. We're a room full of inventors and designers who happen to be investors. So when someone comes to me and says, hello, I need £100,000, please. And you say, what do you need it for? And you say, our marketing's not working. I need to spend more on marketing. That tends to elicit the conversation. What are you doing currently with your marketing? Rather than give me a minute, I'll get the checkbook out. <laughs> yes. I guess I meant in the sense that in the conversation, you know, who do you need me to be? What what role do you need me to play? Right. In terms of you're frustrated with something or you're stuck in trying to solve something. How can I best support where you're at right now? Um, do you need me to ask you questions? Do you want me to just listen? Do you do you want to have a brainstorm? What's that? Do you need me to buy your coffee? <laughs> you know? you just need someone to walk with you whatever that is yes it can be transactional for sure i see how that sounds lovely all the things you just said remind reminds me what it's like to work with women <laughs> why is that that question of what role do you need me to play right now in this conversation i can't i can't think of a single man i've ever worked with that's ever said that and i think of i can think of 20 women who fantastically walk into a complex situation and ask that question or one of those questions. It's a, it's a, 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 it's a huge stereotype and I'm sure we're, we're all trying. I don't want to make this a, a divide, but it's a, it's a continuum. But, um, you know, we're all trying to meet in the middle here. Yeah. Um, but that characteristic and those questions just made me smile. I think, and it makes me think, gosh, I wish I had more confident, experienced women in my environment to take that position because that would solve a lot of problems. It might well. <laughs> I think you might have a job to do there. Um, <laughs> so body language, you talked about you, you had a lovely expression, um, you use your hands to help you chop up issues into segments. That's, I, I imagine that's part of the visualizing, uh, the, you know, the mapping out and so on. I'm very fortunate to have a, the desk I'm sitting at the moment has some very odd objects that have been left for me from previous meetings. I have a remote control, a telephone, four marble cocktail coasters, uh, you know, drink coasters, a disused audio device that didn't work, a coffee cup, my phone, and a sketchbook. And if I were having a conversation with four or five people, all of those objects would be props. They'd be all lined up in a row. And one of them would be representing this aspect and that aspect. And it would be like a Playmobil, but with the objects in front of me. And they would be advancements of coasters sliding across the desk. And then and people would be pointing at the coaster and saying, yes, but if we're here, how can we possibly get there? And it becomes a, a scenario game. Everybody's on it. They're the best meetings where people start, you draw the map for them or you lay out the, the props and they start pointing to them as if they know, now know that they're in this world. Well, if I'm here, how am I going to get there? They'll say, and they'll point from one coaster to the remote control at the far end of the table. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Well, you've introduced new language. It's 3D. Those objects are language too, right? They start to embody ideas and concepts and places. And it's incredibly powerful too. I mean, it can be a way of, it's in the way, in the same way that code can bridge different languages that people speak or, you know, diagrams that illustrate process um, can bridge you know, speaking different languages, national languages, that is. So I think it's an underused way. We often, it's almost like we're sitting on our hands a lot of the time. And I wonder how much more richer communication would happen if more of us did use, um, you know, things that we find around us as props, um, because it can communicate so much more um, and people can get quite attached to those objects and their reaction to something, um, you know, holding on to one of those props tells you so much about their emotional attachment, um, you know, some of the stress points and it's so rich in that regard that it gives you new, new data. What's interesting is the difference between property and issues. Because when you have three-dimensional objects, so I've got two things on, I've got two things in front of me. I've got a coffee cup, and that's an insurance company. And I've got a telephone, and that's a startup trying to get into an insurance company. And there are things that belong to each. They go in the cup, they sit on the phone, and then there's a space between them. And that's the tension and the value exchange. And it says, well, look, if we're going to draw a tie between here and here, what are you going to give me? And what am I going to give you? And it becomes a value exchange conversation. We know where the value sits because that's in the cup and it's on the phone. And I'm trying to have a very visual conversation with you here. You can imagine I had to, I have to have the phone and the, and the cup in front of me to do this for you, which you can't see. But I am imagining a line between the two that says the startup wants to offer this. And in return, the startup wants this back and it deserves it because this is the value it's providing. And that gives everybody a clarity of the difference between where our value is and what we want to exchange. And I think that's often the basis of, well, certainly the basis of trade is what is my value and on what basis am I willing to exchange? And it does not make it easier when it's real. There's no, there's no surprise we developed coin systems and we developed, if you've ever seen the history of money, it's just, it's just the visualization that it's the, um, we make trade uh, into objects. You know, you will work for me for three hours and I will give you 10 pieces of silver. Actually, that's quite a good day rate, isn't it? We should know. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it's, um, it's representative, isn't it? That's essentially what it is. It's representative and, it, you know, intrinsically it holds value. But, you know, you, you, the number of sheep or goat or camels um, equally have currency. And, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's an exchange and a trade. Yes, and we've all, we're all very comfortable when we can physically hold it and count it and move it around and wave it in the air if we need to. <laughs> <laughs> this has been a, a really lovely um, exploration, actually. Uh, you know, going 3D in conversations has been quite different and lovely, so thank you for that. I just wanted to ask one last question, which is what's one thing you would like to leave listeners with? Well, I, I guess the, um, my um, quest to do more and more complex things is about my willingness and my determination to understand the language of others. And so I think the one thing I would want to share that I've learned is that everybody has their own language. And I'm not talking about French, German and Portuguese and 
all the ways we typically talk about language. But there are people that need to be talked to in a certain way. And the more you can learn about that person, so the more quickly you can learn what that person's language is by talking to the people that know them, by watching them, by reading about them, by, by having a, exception. you're going to have a couple of bad conversations first if you have a good one. Until you realize it's a language, you're going to be um, limited in your ability to really engage. What do you call it? Trust and permission. Um, I think at the heart of that is um, finding a unified language. Brilliant. Thank you. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Better Conversations with me, Siham Cyrene. And if you did, leaving me a lovely review and rating on Apple Podcast will help me reach more listeners who want to have better conversations at work and in their private lives. You can check out show notes at betterconversations.co forward slash podcast. If you're a regular subscriber, brilliant, lovely to have you back. And if this is your first time, hit subscribe, leave a review and tell a friend. A screenshot and an Instagram story would be going above and beyond. And I would be very grateful. Please tag me at Siham Cyrene, all one word, S-E-H-A-A-M-C-Y-R-E-N-E. And of course, I'll tag you right back. So what would you like to hear my future guests and I talk about? Or perhaps you would like to be my guest because you've got a strong point of view that you'd like to share or kick about with me on the podcast. Drop me a note, podcast at betterconversations.co. I'd love to hear from you. And if you are a leader who knows you could achieve so much more in your career and be way more influential by having better conversations and stronger relationships, then do consider enrolling for my 12-week online course, Leaders Who Coach. You'll find the curriculum, videos, and a whole load more at leaderswhocoach.today. Thanks for listening. I'm Siham Cyrene, and this has been a better conversation.